Hello and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I'm pleased to announce my new role as CTO or Chief Technology Officer of PlanView. By now, you may have heard the exciting news about Tastop joining PlanView as we officially announced the acquisition at the beginning of July. Throughout our six-year partnership, I've been incredibly impressed watching PlanView grow to become a leader in enterprise agile planning and strategic portfolio management while modernizing all things around project portfolio management. Tastop created and leads the value management category and has been spearheading the shift from project to product around all things flow. We've been able to play an outsides role in helping some of the largest enterprises transform. But it's this new combination that will dramatically accelerate our ability to help the world's organizations survive and thrive in the age of software. Transforming industries is all about coming together with like-minded people. And what brought Tastop and PlanView together is none other than Razad Gaurav, an individual whose team I could not be more happy to join. Razad joined PlanView in 2021 as CEO with over 20 years of experience in the enterprise software space, driving innovation-based growth and scaling up technology businesses. He's a trusted advisor to leading executives, boards, and investors on topics related to digital transformation initiatives and has been recognized by Goldman Sachs as one of the 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs of 2020. He's also engaged in various philanthropic and policy initiatives related to medical research, STEM education across minorities, and efforts to reduce carbon emissions. So with that, I'm thrilled to have Razat here by my side to tell you about his journey and the great work that lies ahead. Razat, welcome to the Project to Product podcast. It is great to have you here. And I think a lot of our audience might have heard about the announcement of PlanView acquiring Tastop. We're not going to get into the details of that, but I think we are going to talk about some of the history that led to this, some of the ways that the market has evolved and why we see the combination of these, these approaches, these ways of thinking as, as so critical to accelerating digital transformations and helping companies navigate this, this increasingly tricky climate. But before we get into any of that, I would just love for people to hear some of the history uh, and some of your background, your accomplishments, with what you shared with me early on, uh, almost a year ago now, where you took me through the way that supply chain management, planning, execution evolved, so some of your early involvement, because I think whenever we chat about this topic, and I, I just realized how we're just basically stuck in some very early phase of our infancy in terms of how digital and software work versus the kinds of things that you were used to, to seeing in, uh, in the previous parts of your career. So why don't you, if you could just take us back to, to some of those early days of, of I2, maybe Blue Yonder, and just to take us through some of your history, some of your learnings. Sure, Mick. Uh, thanks for having me. It's fun to be doing this podcast with you. Yeah, like, like you and I discussed, I think it was back in Seattle uh, almost a year ago. You know, I grew up in the software and technology space, building supply chain planning and execution systems, right, uh, for over 20 years. And through those years, went through a lot of learning cycles, but a lot of the inspiration behind the early systems and processes and thought processes in making supply chain decisions happen uh, was heavily influenced by the work of Eli Goldratt, right, and, and his theory of constraints 
supply chains, you know, when you're thinking of product flows, when you're thinking of manufacturing, production, logistics, warehousing, distribution, fulfillment, it's uh, a very complex, uh, multivariate environment, right? And, and you're dealing with all kinds of constraints and bottlenecks. And uh, Eli Goldratt's work was heavily influenced in some of the early systems that created constraint-based planning paradigms for the shop floor, the factory, uh, for manufacturing, right? And that extended itself to the broader supply chain network as well. So that's where I, I, I grew up. And uh, we, we built systems that were designed to bring efficiency, productivity, and uh, Supply chain systems were one of the early uh, users of mixed integer programming and linear programming using optimization techniques, right, to help make smarter and better decisions. You know, the number of variables you have is highly complex. And also, as a result of that, it's also highly variable, right? And as a result of that, in the last, I would say, five to seven years, uh, there's been a lot of usage and a lot of practical applied use cases of using machine learning uh, techniques, reinforcement learning techniques in helping uh, some of those predictions and those decisions happen, right? So that's, that's, those, that's my background. And I grew up in, in, in that space. Of course, when I started, uh, you know, right out of college, I got into management consulting. And, you know, that's, that was in some ways a continuation of, 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 of uh, university, right? And then I, uh, I joined I2, a company called I2 Technologies out of Dallas, that was a pioneer in uh, supply chain planning and, and execution systems. And I was a product manager. I was a rookie product manager. I, I think I'm still a recovering product manager in some ways. <laughs> and got into that and then played a variety of roles across an 11-year time frame at I2. And we went through a lot of uh, learnings in that, in, that, in that time frame. Did a lot of amazing things, but also made a lot of mistakes. Right. And, and uh, learned a lot, uh, you know, in those years and, and worked with a very, very smart group of people who were just brilliant. I just was very fortunate to have that opportunity. And then from there, we, we sold I2 to a company called JDA, which is now called Blue Yonder. You know, I spent another seven to eight years there in various leadership roles, uh, expanded beyond my product management early days into, into more the go to market function, more general management functions. And then uh, it led me to my first CEO uh, position at a company called Llamasoft. Llamasoft was out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, another sort of pioneer in, in taking the whole notion of supply chain design and analytics to a different level. And, and, and that's where, you know, that's also both I2 and Llamasoft had a very strong data science, you know, what we call data science today, what you know previously was called operations research, uh, you know, uh, where, where using data and algorithmic techniques in, in, you know, algorithmic techniques could be simulation, optimization, machine learning in making smarter and more intelligent uh, business decisions for the customers, right? And uh, I just love building products. I just love the magic of software. Uh, you know, it still amazes me that, you know, a company like PlanView, you know, we, we, we have the same product that gets used by hundreds and thousands of different companies across tens of different industry verticals, but it's the same code base, right? And, and, and it still applies to a bag as much as it applies to a manufacturer, as much as it applies to 
a retailer or an insurance company or a pharmaceutical company. That's, I'm still amazed by that. It's so amazing that, that you can have one product that can be so widely and broadly valuable, just like Tasta, right? And so um, that's, that's, that's my background, and I'm, I'm still on that learning journey, and, and I'm, I'm really excited about the next phase and, and continuing that learning journey with, with you. That, that, that's excellent, as am I. And, and I, you know, when we first met, I, I vividly recalled Mike Satterfield. He was, one of, he was our first institutional investor from, from Yaletown Partners. And we were looking at, at raising our, our Series A, and he said, uh, look, what you need to do with the opportunity that you have, and he'd worked, by the way, with, with I2, the opportunity that you've got is to do for software and value streams and digital what, what I2 did for supply chain. So could you just take us a bit more through that? Because I think so many listeners have you know, they've studied Goldrat. Uh, obviously, a lot of the literature in the agile and DevOps space is really derivatives of, of Goldrat's work. But... Again, the the way that you talk about it, the way that it is really so grounded in data analytics and, and these solutions that, that you created as part of that entire movement, could you just take us through how some of that worked, how some of it came to be, and really, I think, what we're going to see is a, a lot of what you've already done repeating itself now for technology. So yeah. it'd be great to hear your, your perspective on how that evolved through your tenure there. Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of parallels, frankly, that I think we can learn from. And of course, there's some nuances and specifics uh, that are different in when we talk about digital transformation or the business of software development or delivery or, or transformation on a, on, on a broader scale. But but look, I think I think it starts with really understanding uh, the flow, right? In, in supply chains, as you know, you're talking about uh, the flow of products in one direction but also the flow of information in both and every direction, right? So there's demand that's flowing from customers uh, or customer's customer upstream, right? And, and, and that's, that's a, a demand signal, a unit of demand. And, and then the, you, you're trying to make the product available, either as a manufacturer or as a retailer or as a distributor, and you're trying to position the product in a way that it can fulfill the demand. I mean, so the, the essence of supply chain management is about balancing and matching demand with supply, right, in the most profitable way possible, in the most efficient way possible, right? Uh, that's the simplest way I can dumb it down in, in simple English. And so when we built our systems, we realized uh, the real world was a lot more complex than, than that, that simplistic representation, right? Because you've got a, a plethora of different functions in an organization involved, right? And, you know, you, you've got people who are in sales and marketing that are typically the ones that are providing that demand signal from the customer, right? You've got people, you know, who are doing the sourcing of the raw materials of component parts, people who are doing the manufacturing and production, you have people who are actually moving the products and, 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 and so on and so forth, right? So all these are different functions. And just like in any organization, you've got functional silos, right? So while each function can be optimized, in reality, that product flow sometimes under-delivers, you know, significantly because you're not looking at the end-to-end -end, uh, supply chain across those functions, right? Uh, I think you probably identify with that same problem that exists when it comes to uh, development flows or, or flow of value or flow of work, right? In, in, in a more general 
context as well. The, the, the first thing we had to do was to realize that, you know, we, we need to build a data layer that needs to have some notion of a semantic, right, that allows these different functions to kind of uh, talk the same language and to be able to have, you know, one version of the truth and to have the ability to get some level of transparency and visibility across these functions, right? And, and so, again, a lot of parallels to, to the work that you've been doing and, of course, the work that we're doing now at PlanView as well together. And then, and then, you know, like in any kind of network or flow, you know, uh, situation, you've got, you know, lots of different constraints, right? Constraints could be in the supply chain world could be constrained in how much can you manufacture or what's your raw material availability or a constraint could be, you know, um, how much can you process through a warehouse or how many dock doors do you have for receiving and shipping products, right? Just like you have constraints in when you're, when you're, you know, thinking about the flow of work or flow of software, right? Development, you've got constraints in terms of resources and, and especially those resources and, you know, that, that have a certain capacity for a certain skill set. Uh, you've got, you know, constraints in terms of capital sometimes, you know, uh, no, no organization in the world has infinite capital and resources, right? So, so part of what we, what we had to do is we were building these systems and, and helping mid-size and large organizations really, you know, optimize their supply chains was to get the data right, to get a common language that they could communicate across these functions and be able to uh, have a clear representation of these constraints, these operational constraints, right? Because as decisions are being made, the difficulty is that if you don't have a constraint-based paradigm, you, leave, you, you end up with a very theoretical depiction that you can't operationalize in the real world, right? Uh, so, so that's how we, we build these systems uh, over time. And of course, you know, there wasn't one system that did everything. We, we had you know, logical modules that, that kind of mapped, but again, with a common underpinning of, of data, uh, visibility, uh, and, and decision sciences, right? And the other thing I'll point out is that in supply chains, there's some added complexities because the dependencies are not only on these functional silos that exist within the organization, you're also dependent on third parties who are trading partners. So think of like a Procter & Gamble moving their products, right? Uh, they're dependent on the carriers, could be over-the-road trucking carriers, could be, you know, ocean container carriers. You know, you're dependent on your suppliers. You know, think of the automotive industry. They're highly dependent on their tier one and tier two suppliers, right? And so similarly, on the, on the other end of the supply chain, you're dependent on your customers and your customers' operations. So the dependencies and the, the impacts are obviously complicated enough within your own organization with all the functional silos we talked about, but also they get compounded with all these external exogenous factors as well, right? So, so but doing all of that while having that objective function of, you know, how do you do that at the least cost with the least amount of inventory, but the highest level of service, right? I mean, that's ultimately the business outcome that you're trying to achieve, right? And so all the decisions and all the systems we built 
had the notion of a certain service level, service level in the supply chain world leads to like on-time delivery performance, right? Or, or like if I'm a tire manufacturer like Michelin, can I guarantee two-day service to any customer in the world, right? Or do I need to do that across every customer because that's going to be very expensive. Maybe I need to segment my customer. So segmentation becomes a very important technique. And, and for each segment of the customer base, I have a different service level uh, approach to it. And then I, I orient and design a supply chain that is that is helping me achieve those service levels. And then with those service levels in place, how do I minimize the amount of inventory I need to carry on my balance sheet? Because that, that leads to cash flow. And how do I do that in the most profitable way, meaning minimum in terms of uh, operating costs? So, so that's that's how we build these systems. And and look, that that journey continues. I and mean, look look how the supply chains were challenged during the pandemic, right? I mean, it's just a big shock to the system. And every weak link in the supply chain got exposed. You know, when when you had such an exogenous, you know, uh, <laughs> explosion. To, to the system and 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 so but it, it in, in many ways it kind of reinforces the need to focus on those fundamentals and the fundamentals need to be designed with resiliency in mind with with uh, variability in mind and and I think that evolution is going to continue as we go forward much like the evolution is going to continue in in how companies think about you know their flow of work how they think about the the their approach to digital transformations. And, and again, many of these organizations that are working on these transformation journeys, they are not sitting on an island somewhere. They, they, they are highly impacted by exogenous factors. I mean, right now we're dealing with all these inflationary pressures, right? I mean, here in the U.S., we haven't lived in such, an, such a high inflationary environment in, in, in a very long time. Sometimes, you know, there are generations of people in the, in the workforce today that have never, and that's impacting, you know, all kinds of business priorities. And, and it's impacting, you know, how you need to strategically align yourself with the, the new market realities. And that's going to impact the way we think about transformations, the way we think about investing in, 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 in digitalization and, and those journeys. So I, and I, I think there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, I can keep going on, but I'll stop here. But hopefully that gives you a little bit more sense. It, it does. It's just there, there's so many parallels. And then, and then what's, what's concerning to me is, is a lot of the lacks of parallels, right? Where you know, I, I know my, and my experience in terms of just understanding how sophisticated and effective this has become. Uh, and supply chain management came from. I, I, I told I told the story in Project to Product when I was physically witnessing at the BMW Leipzig plant. You know, not only just in time delivery, where the trucks are dropping off parts at exactly the point in the assembly line where they're going to get consumed. It's just in sequence manufacturing across thirty thousand suppliers. So how all it, it just was mind boggling to me how managing that and again across multiple tiers of of suppliers as well. So. It was just completely mind-boggling to me how you know that, that the carbon fiber in the iCars at the time was coming from Oregon and it was actually being properly supplied and the, the plant just kept running. And of course, how resilient a lot of these organizations were to those disruptions. So, the, and, and then I, you know, I would then go talk to a, a technology executive, someone responsible for a multiple dollar IT budget, ask a question, where's your constraint? And, and it was like I was speaking a foreign language because there was not that understanding yeah. of, of constraints and how they're in these bottlenecks and how these are the most critical things to manage. So I think the common thing I see is when you look at, so I assume when you were working with leaders back then, 
the the solutions that IT were was providing these these common data layers with with, with a common language and semantics. This is something that was just was it a part of sort of day to day work to be looking at at these reports at these dashboards? H- how did it work back then? Because somehow this accelerated how manufacturing works, and I just feel like we're still in the dark ages with with software at scale. Yeah, I think I think look, I think I think need and sort of necessity is the mother of all in, in, inventions, as they say, right? And and. Uh, supply chains had to become more uh, advanced and sophisticated, right? And and uh, I mean, if you think about, you talked about like BMW or like an automotive industry, right? Like there's thirty thousand component parts that go into making a vehicle. Thirty over thirty thousand component parts, right? And and by the way, every one of them has to be in place. And come together at the right time before that car can roll off the shop floor, right? And it comes from tens of thousands of different suppliers, right? So, so because no automotive company, even though Tesla is a little bit more vertically integrated, they still have hundreds and thousands of different suppliers that are providing those different component parts, right? And and so, in order for General Motors or Ford or you know, BMW or Volkswagen to really build a business at scale. There was no way for them to do that without really getting more advanced in their thinking of leveraging data in creating that synchronization across their own supply chain, but also with their value chain, right? And in being able to use sophisticated mathematical modeling to help with synchronizing the, the supply chain. The just-in-time delivery models are fascinating. You know, another industry where there's a lot of science that has come into this is retail, right? I mean, you know, you look at someone like a Walmart, the, the scale of their operations are such where, you know, they give dog door appointment times to their carriers within a 15-minute window. Really? Right. So think about all the variability and things are moving across the country, across the globe, across the ocean. There are multiple handoffs and different third parties involved. And they give their suppliers a 15 minute window that they have to be able to deliver their product to their warehouse, the Walmart warehouse within a 15 to 30 minute window. Right. And, and these products are coming from a plethora of, of locations. So, so you know, you you have you have you can't do that just you know kind of by winging it, right? You can't just do that on the fly, and you can't do that just in manual ways. You need uh, sophisticated systems and data and and synchronization and data science to come together for to, to facilitate that. I mean, you look at someone like an Amazon, right? Amazon, if if you remember when when they started offering the two-day service, right? They guarantee that they'll be able to deliver within two days. It was a big thing, right? Then they said, okay, you know what? We'll offer, we'll guarantee you on a bunch of merchandise or their products that they sell next day. That was a paradigm shift. They were guaranteeing next day. Then they came to same day, right? And we were like, are you crazy? Same day. And then now, you know, in Austin or Chicago or Vancouver, they've got the whole prime now where they guarantee within two hours, right? So if I'm cooking a meal this evening, you know, you order the, the, the what you need, 
early in the evening or, or in the afternoon and it, with 99.9% delivery performance or delivery reliance, they'll be on time in full with the right quantities at your doorstep. Now think about what kind of a supply chain operation is required to deliver on that, right? So I think there's a lot we can learn from that when it comes to delivering you know, technology solutions uh, in the market. And at the end of the day, we have to leverage the data that exists, right? I mean, it, it, and by the way, in the development of technology solutions, it's not that there's no data. There's plenty of data. Mm-hmm. It's just not very usable. Well, and it's not, <laughs> and it's, it's not used. This is the fascinating thing is the data is so rich, right? We've got yes. data down to, you know, when you, when you actually look at the data that's in these organizations, you've got, you can almost get to like minute long time slices of developers, of other people touching these artifacts, building features, fixing defects and incidents and outages and so on. Right. And, and yet the, the data doesn't get used. And contrasting that with what you're saying where it's actually used for optimization, for simulation, for some of these things that, that you've told me about, I'd like you to touch on. It is, it is just amazing how, again, the opportunity that we have for optimizing software value streams, for understanding software value streams, rather than having one thing go wrong, let's say like, Log4j happened in December. It's it's like the world's software value stream is grinding to a halt. Like, you know, we can't imagine an event, even through what's happened in the last two years, where every single manufacturing line on the planet just just grinds to a halt. Right? There's yeah. There's, there's been this resilience that's come from the data, the optimization, and and the understanding of the yeah. constraints. But but Mick, what I'll say is, I agree with you that there's the data exists, but it's a little bit like water. Right? There's more water on this planet Earth than anything else, and there's yet not enough to drink, right? I, I look at data, a lot of people call data as the new oil. I think of data as really water, right? Because there's so much data, we're all swimming yeah. in data all over the place, but it's not curated. It doesn't have you know, a semantic layer that people can talk about the same data elements while using different tags and, 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 and semantics in, in a cohesive way. And then the data is not synchronized in a way that it can be used to make, to get visibility first, because 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 that's that's the first layer, and that's part of what I'm so excited about what what Tastop is doing, because you guys have defined that semantic layer, right? When it comes to you know developing and delivering technology solutions, and with that you get you have a better chance, and you've got the obviously you've got, you need to have the connected fabric to to integrate into a plethora of systems to get that data, curate that you know, with a common semantic layer. But then, with that visibility, now we can use data science techniques and do the smart stuff. Now we can add intelligence to it, right? Just like in the supply chains, right? Is we, we can we can start now using whether it's you know, you know and, and different techniques will lend themselves better to different types of use cases, whether it's simulation or optimization or machine learning techniques to bring intelligence. But you can't bring intelligence without doing the heavy lifting in getting that water. Like you know, I'm sitting in Chicago today, and Lake Michigan is just outside my window here, and there's more water there, but. It's not drinkable water. I've got to do something with that water, right? Before I can, I can put it in my glass and, and drink it. And, and so it's the same thing with data. You, you've got to get it in a shape and form and in a way that it can actually feed these intelligent algorithm-driven engines to do the smart stuff. Yeah, and it is fascinating because 
a lot of these organizations, they've, they've got their data lakes, and yeah, their data lakes are a whole bunch of dirty, undrinkable waters, <laughs> as we all know, and the data warehouses. And I think it seems to me like the front office data, the sales and marketing data, the, the click streams and so on, there's a fair amount of maturity around, but all of the production, the, the, the portfolio data, how the financial data is connected, all of the development and delivery data, that's where it's it, it hasn't been done. So it, it would be actually good to, to just think back to how you did this because you know you did mention with IT you were actually reaching into sales and marketing data, right? You were you were connecting across these different silos. I, I obviously completely agree with you, Razad. This is it, we we need to basically model that data and turn it into information. We we can't just be drowning in data, and that's why so many organizations who've tried to yeah. dump all this development data, their data data warehouses, they're getting no analytics out that they would dare show to their leadership, right? Because there's, they know there's not enough information there. So you, you said common semantics, you said a, a common model. It, it'd be great if you could just dig a little deeper for, for yeah. what worked because, because it was pulled off then and, and we need to do it now. So Yeah, and, 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 and look, I think a lot of these data lake initiatives, I can understand why organizations embark on those journeys, right? And, and, I, you know, and, and I've seen many companies around the world and you know, I've got, great friends in, in many of those companies that have embarked these big data lake initiatives, right? But the majority of them, they don't deliver much. And, and, and what I've learned over time is the single biggest reason why they underdeliver is because the team that's working on these data lake initiatives has not taken the time up front to step back and really think about how do you want to use this data? What are the types of decisions you want to make using that data? What types of outcomes are you trying to achieve, right? And 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 companies, you know, and organizations just go and jump on this big data lake bandwagon without taking the time to think about the business objectives that they want to address, right? Because most of those big bang data lake initiatives they don't succeed, you know. But the ones that do succeed, if you if you learn one one of the common attributes you'll find in them are that they are very clear about what types of insights, decisions, you know, business outcomes that they want to achieve. They've clearly defined those objectives very clearly, right? And then they've gone about curating the appropriate and relevant data in a sensible way, as opposed to a big bang. And then you have all this data, and then what do you do with it, right? So that's the first thing that I've learned. The second thing is, the data needs to have context. What I mean by that is, you know, based on, again, what types of insights or decisions or outcomes you're trying to achieve, you curate the data, but the data is not, you know, the different elements of data, they're not sitting in on different islands, right? There's, you've got to also define, I'm going to use a big word here, you need to define the ontology, right? Part of it is having a common semantic layer, so you have a mass data construct, right? So you're not using something like the same product that has that is depicted in 10 different ways in nine different systems, right? You've got a common massive data layer. So that's a semantic layer. But then the ontology defines how that product relates to all the other data elements around it. What is the interrelationship there, right? And look, this is the hard stuff. This is not easy. Right, in my experience, Mick, right? But the prize, if you get it right, if you've really thought through up front what your objectives are and what kind of decisions and insights you're trying to gain, and you've 
framed the scope of that upfront, and then you go about creating a common data layer around it with the right semantic layer, with the right context and ontology. Man, that's that's water I want to drink all day long. <laughs> you can do so much with it. Then you can feed those smart algorithms. Yeah, that that is exciting stuff. But you're saying to to and to to work backwards from the t- decisions that need to be supported at the business level. Yes, yes, yes. Because because otherwise, a data lake without that kind of end objective or outcome in mind is is typically not a very valuable. You know, then it's going to be like the Lake Michigan water. Right, and I mean, we've we've now we've got. Technology executives with hundred million, multi-billion-dollar IT budget, flying blind. Who I believe, and I think you and I have had some conversations around. They're going to have to be making some difficult decisions over what we're, what we're likely to see in terms of the macroeconomic environment with potential contraction, contractions, recessions, and so on. So, how do you, I guess, as a business leader, and and in terms of the conversations that you have with with your peers, how do you look at the kinds of decisions that organizations need to be able to to make work make work at that strategic portfolio level at the Enterprise agile level and and in the end, in terms of maximizing flow through their value streams, where where I think everyone's feeling capacity constrained already, and it could get worse. Yeah, you know the 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 first part is don't wait for the crisis to happen to to really start framing out a lot of these foundational layers we just talked about. You've got to start that journey. You know, if you haven't started that journey as an organization, you need to get on that bandwagon pretty quickly. But but the the journey is not to just adopt the next fancy hotshot technology, right? Uh, it's really the journey starts with introspecting as an organization and as a leadership team, what are you trying to achieve, right? What are the types of decisions you're trying to drive? And look, that's not so straightforward. You know, somebody sitting in a dark room somewhere can't figure that out all on their own, right? That requires organizational alignment and discussion and debate and hashing out Right, that's the hard stuff that, that that companies have to do. But but doing that up front will really help you figure out and scope out what are the enabling technologies you're going to need. What are the enabling or the or the relevant data sets you're going to need? Right. But that preparation, that that work, to me, is very foundational and has to start. And if you've done that, right, the good news is when you have these exogenous, you know, disruptions. Uh, or you have, you know, times of uncertainty, like the one we are navigating through right now. You know, no one knows right now, are we in a recession? Are we not in a recession? You know, are we in a slowdown? Are we not, not in a slowdown? How long is a slowdown going to last? No one knows. No one has a crystal ball, right? But, but, you know, if history has taught us anything, one of the most powerful techniques to navigate through this is what if scenario planning. But to do what if scenario planning you require to have made the investment in the underlying you know, capabilities. And, and part of that is this foundational layer of the relevant contextualized data, right? And of course, together with that capabilities that help you, you know, run those scenarios in a rapid form and provide insights. Ultimately, I still see a lot of organizations you know, run, making decisions from a gut feel, right? Or making decisions based on some hacked up, you know, quick and dirty spreadsheet model, right? And and look, in many situations that may be okay, right? But with the the magnitude of change, the frequency of change that we're all experiencing, right? That's not enough anymore, right? 
you've got to make this a core competency. This is like a, this is a muscle that is going to be essential for companies to survive and thrive going forward, right? And, and that's what we see some of the best-in-class companies really getting on, on that bandwagon, right? I mean, the, 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 the fact that and, – and, and what I, I envision is the, the companies that are making the investments in this area, that are developing the right foundational capabilities, that are going about it not just in terms of the fad, but from a first principles perspective of what is the decisions that I'm trying, I'm trying to make? What are the outcomes I'm trying, trying to achieve? How am I going to now align my foundational capabilities, my technology investments, my portfolio of, of change initiatives? How am I going to align all of that, those together? How am I going to prioritize those? How am I going to deploy and allocate my finite resources and capital? Those are the kinds of companies that will, I think, pull far, far ahead of the rest of the pack, right? And, and by the way, all these things that I'm talking about, this is not just the responsibility of, you know, the IT person. This is a business imperative, right? And by the way, the lines between business and so-called IT have blurred, right? You're seeing more and more organizations where the former CIO is now the CEO, right? Business is technology. Technology is business, right? And so they have to come together in order to, to really transform and have, you know, and really thrive in this go-forward digital age. So another way of looking at this is, I think, pace of change is not going to slow down. What we've seen in terms of change in the past five years is greater than what we saw in the previous 25, 30 years. And what we're probably going to see in the next five years is going to be far greater than what we've seen in the last 50 years, right? So, so this is no longer a nice to have capability and and and, and um, I, I think it's a must have core competency no matter what industry you're in whether you're in banking or insurance or retail or manufacturing or automotive or pharmaceutical or life sciences thinking through these strategic elements of the decisions and the outcomes you're trying to arrive achieve and aligning those with your technology and your broader transformation initiatives, and then preparing the foundational capabilities of data that surround it along the lines of what we talked about is, is very fundamental to the go forward enterprise. I could not agree more. And that, that, that just fascinating to see what, what happens when it's not in place. So one of the, I was working with a company during the pandemic and I, I hadn't actually realized that, that they'd undertaken this decision, but because of this, separation between the, the business and, and technology and this lack of understanding of the economics of flow. They did, they did one of the crazier things I've, I've seen in terms of resource reallocation. They, they basically cut a person from one, one person from every team across hundreds of teams. And so because, again, they didn't understand those, some of those fundamental dynamics, which are somewhat similar for creative work to supply chains, but of course it's, it's actually people. It's, it's teams that have to learn how to work together. They crippled every single team. Instead of, of course, going to the you know the parts of the organization where the they were seeing the uh, the demand signals fall and making sure they they actually focus the reallocations or any cuts that they they need to make there. So it's so result. What you're saying though is that the organizations that that don't see this are the ones that are going to keep fundamentally making these these kinds of mistakes, right? These categories of mistakes. Whereas the ones who can actually get the right kind of data understand. And I guess I would like you to touch on this because. 
the way you think about this, I found extremely helpful, is, is actually have an understanding of both capacity and, and of demand, right? Because I think so much of what's going on is there's no CEO out there of a, of a technology company, of a bank that wants to become, become a more innovative technology provider that, that doesn't want great digital experiences. But, but there's no understanding, there's, there isn't this data layer that's, that's common across everything that's saying, okay, well, here's our current capacity, uh, here's where we're actually falling under piles of technical debt, here's an opportunity where we can actually move faster in our portfolio. So can, can you just speak a bit to that in terms of this, this, this challenge that so many companies have right now is that, that, that there's so much demand, but there's, there's this demand capacity mismatch. Yeah. I've spent the last 25 years of my life trying to balance demand with supply and capacity, right? Uh, and, 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 and understanding the demand signals is really important because it's an input into any and all decisions, right? And uh, I can talk to you a lot about just demand itself, right? Like because sometimes, you know, you talk to five people in the same organization on what they think the demand should be, you'll get six different answers, right? right? And, And so thinking about how do you create a single uh, view of demand across the enterprise in itself is is a significant effort, and then uh, balancing that with capacity uh, and and in knowledge work and and you know technology solutions, you know, you know obviously the biggest capacity that that you're dealing with constraint capacity you're dealing with is resources and capital, right? And so doing that is always an ongoing thing. And then you've got something called timelines because, because you know, not everything can be, you know, if you had infinite time, thinking of the, uh, the extreme, you could deliver anything and everything, right? But, but we don't have infinite time and, and things are changing as we go through that infinite time. So you've got to have those feedback and learning cycles and the ability to learn as you go along. But balancing demand with, with the capacity and supply of resources and capital in my view, it has to be a continuous process, right? It cannot be just something that you do once a year or, you know, once a quarter, right? I mean, I see companies doing it on a monthly basis now, and some companies are doing it on a biweekly basis, so every other week, right? And because things are changing much more rapidly, right? And But again, in order to do that effectively, you need to have invested in the underlying data foundation, <laughs> Right. And, and when you have that, and by the way, sometimes, you know, if some of the, the, the lead times you're working with are going to be very long. Right. That's where demand is not just a fixed unit input. Right. Demand is also variable. Right. And there will be some other external elements that will be variable as well. And, and so, so if, if, if I'm trying to develop a product the lead time to develop that product is not going to be something I can deliver within two weeks or a month. It's going to be a longer investment because of an R&D cycle or whatever the case is, right? You know, this is where using demand, not just as a fixed deterministic input, but as distribution curve, as a function, that's where simulation is is a very, very potent technique in, in being able to model that out as you're trying to make decisions on how best to prioritize and, and, and allocate your capacity and your resources, right? So, uh, and, and by the way, some companies do that very well, right? You know, we, we've got examples like in the pharmaceutical industry, right? 
their product life cycles are 10 years, just, just not their product life cycles, their R&D uh, cycle times for developing certain products can be you know up to 10 years because it's, it's full of a lot of pure research work, but also research and development work, but also a lot of regulatory toll gates that they have to go through, right? In that, and, and, but they've got to make bets now for things that will not pan out till maybe 5, 10, 15 years from now, right? So that's where I think uh, simulation and stochastic models are, are very potent, right? In, in trying to inform those decisions. Because in that time frame, you know, all the inputs that go into making that decision, they're not going to be deterministic. They're not going to be static, right? They're going to be changing over time. And that's where modeling those as variables or as functions with different distribution curves can be a very potent way. A very smart way of making those decisions, right? And and all of this should apply to what we're doing, right? If if we're going to have increased capacity in terms of the the let's say the developers we're hiring on, we should be able to actually get a simulation of what that's going to deliver and how it's going to help meet the demand curve. And and again, if we could just properly model, visualize, quantify both you know, demand, supply, and capacity for for software value streams, we we'd be there. So so and, and Razad, I think that you and I have spent a lot of time thinking about okay, how do we get there? How do how do we get this industry there? Um, I love the fact that our, our the vision that we built out for this we're making public uh, with with these three waves. Um, we'll link to some materials in the where you can read more about that. But just take take us through those three waves, right? Because in, in the first wave, it, it is about getting more of that data. But then, of course, feeding that and you know the the, the way that you've taught me to think about this in terms of driving that decision making, getting to that next stage of not just data but analytics, insights, and 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 things like simulation, where we can actually play out scenarios of these extremely consequential things. We're affecting a lot of our staff, our customers, our, our the viability of our of and, and the future of our companies. So, uh, if you could take us through those those three waves, I think it, it'd be great for people to for our audience here to hear that because I think that is how we can start across the industry bringing about these changes. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, the exciting thing is, you know, we've been on this journey. It's not like we're just starting this journey together, right? We've been on this journey now for several years. To me, the first wave is really in, in getting that data from the plethora of systems that are involved in, in that application development delivery lifecycle, right? And curating that in a way that that you have that single pane of glass or, or you know what I was talking about that common semantic layer which is part of your flow fabric that that you you, you you've really developed the platform around the Tesla platform around and being able to really have visibility into I mean I, I've I've run software businesses for I've been in the software business for 25 years and I can I can't tell you every time when I'm dealing with our engineering and development team, there's always been a black hole, right? Is, you know, where are we at in that life cycle? How do we measure? Are we doing well? Are we not doing well? What is the opportunity for improvement, right? You, know, you can't do any of that till you're able to bring all this data together from, you know, JIRA and, and uh, ServiceNow and uh, DAO and, and, and a whole plethora of different systems, right? And so, so, to me, wave one is taking that, right? And, and really being able to, you know, bring that to, 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 to form in the context of technology solutions, in the, in the context of software development initiatives. And, and most companies are investing in transformations. Most of these investments are taking on the shape of digital transformation. And a bigger share of wallet digital transformation, no matter what industry you're in, 
is going into developing software, whether you're developing it in-house or you're contracting it out to a third party, right? So, so that's a growing share. And, and, and the reason why that is is because companies are realizing that this needs to become a core competency. It's no longer just, okay, somebody else's job to develop software. Even if you are a, a bank, you know, I mean, if you're Goldman Sachs, you've got more software engineers than you have bankers, right? Uh, so, so, so software development has to become a core competency for a lot of these companies. So to me, that's all about wave one is to bring that single pane of glass and to provide and change that black box into something that you can see and, and, and have visibility to and measure and, and really see where you are in, in that journey of delivery of value with whatever you're trying to achieve, right? Uh, on those technology initiatives. So that's wave one. Wave two to me is to really be able to take that, but also link it back, link that, that single pane of glass and visibility, again, still with the scope of digital transformations and technology solutions and software de development delivery, but link it back to the planning elements, right? Because, because as things are happening, you've got to now, now that you have this visibility, what levers can you use, whether it's resources or capacity or, or even changing maybe all the way fundamentally your ultimate OKRs, right? Those things need to be, feed, be, be fed off of the single pane of glass that you have now that you've curated with this data, right? And, and, and doing that in a closed loop way, in a bi-directional closed loop way, just like the supply chain planning and execution systems did in, you know, a few generations ago, is a massive opportunity, I see, right? And then wave three is to take the same constructs that we talked about in the context of technology solutions and digital transformation, software development delivery, but apply that, that same flow fabric and that context to the broader flow of work that's happening in the enterprise, right? Companies are spending so much time and effort on all kinds of initiatives, right? And so many of them are so disconnected from each other. And in some cases, everyone is running hard and running fast to sometimes stay in the same place or go backwards. It's like Alice in Wonderland, you know? And so we have to get a hold of that. We've got to get, and the way to unlock that is to get visibility, much along the same lines that we talked about, and then to close the loop again with the planning layer, whether it's resource capacity planning or financial and funding or, or, you know, capital allocation planning, right? And close the loop. And, and to me, that's what will really help us move the needle forward, right? In a, in a dramatic way, because the, the shortcoming is not, you know, any company can create a very elegant strategy. And most companies do, right? Most large and small size companies, they, they create an elegant strategy and it, it, beautiful charts, you know, well thought out, uh, sometimes even well socialized, right? The challenge is not in creating the strategy, the challenge is in achieving the business outcomes and delivering and operationalizing those strategies. That's where the big gap is. And, and by, in my vision, and this is sort of like what you and I have talked about, Makers, like wave three is if we're able to apply the same flow fabric and connect the dots and provide that visibility, that single pane of glass to the broader scope of work that's being done in the enterprise and link it back to the resource and capital allocation decisions you're making, I think we have the opportunity to really move the needle in companies achieving the outcomes that they want to achieve, right? 
in a way that that I think can completely change the the underlying architecture of how these companies function, and that's 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 what's what excites us all about about about, about this combination. Well, and Rosanna, I think you, you also said to provide the feedback cycles to that strategy, right? Because I think you, you did mention how critical, especially in changing markets, macro environments, and so on, th- those fast feedback cycles are, right? So, so somehow making sure, yeah. Yeah, it's it's so key because, because you know you know typically companies come up with a with a three year or a five year strategic plan, right? Well, the world changes very dramatically in that time frame, and by the way, it's not changing only three years from now; it's changing every month, every quarter, every year, right? And so, the one of the underlying design principles right. in how you're going to be operationalizing and achieving these outcomes is to have those feedback loops and those learning cycles. That's that's to me, is very fundamental. Um, it's it's something that is fundamental to an initiative or a product of any shape, size, or scale. Right? Is is that that notion of closing the loop with those feedback cycles? Yeah, a- amazing. And I think again, I think that this is how we'll get the the industry the industry there. And I think that you know the story you and I shared recently of of just how powerful it is when. When this is happening, right? When Tesla is seeing a supply chip shortage, realizing that the demand signal for lumbar support chips is not that high, that they can repurpose those chips for elsewhere in the car, and all of this is updated in the software and the software platform, and then the assembly line nearly overnight is is. Can we just please get get that to these to to the world's software enterprises? And I think these these three waves are yeah. exactly how we'll do that. So amazing. Absolutely. So Razat, any that, that that's this is again. I think just. It's kind of so much inspiration. I, I do think you you do give me hope that we'll get there in 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 years, not decades, or and that we'll be able to prove out a lot of these concepts in in, in months and not years. So, any other uh, anything else to share in terms of people wanting these solutions now? So, yeah, what, what I'll say is, look, th- this is going to be a journey. Rome wasn't conquered in a year, and we are not going to sort of reimagine and rebuild the future of how the enterprise works, you know, how work happens in the enterprise overnight. But the, the, the journey is important and, and the prize at the end of the tunnel yeah. is so big, right? That, and and it's, I mean, obviously we're pursuing it, but I'd encourage the entire industry to pursue this, yeah. right? The opportunity is big and the time is now to, to embark on this journey. And I'm just so excited that we're gonna be working on it together, hand in hand. And that's what gets me up every day in the morning excited, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's because the, the opportunity is big, the prize is big, and the impact this can have on so many fronts is so massive. Yeah, no, it, it is amazing. I did, you just make me remember when I, I recall Jeffrey Moore mentioning, like, you know, always look for the next trillion dollar problem. And, and what we've done is measured companies' value streams, seeing that most, more than half of them are waste and wait states. So there's a trillion dollars of value somewhere to be unlocked here as, as we move through these waves. Yeah, I mean, if you just put some numbers, if you just look at any numbers, you know, like latest projections I saw from IDC is over $7 trillion is getting invested on just digital transformations globally, right? It's a big, I mean, even if you don't believe that number, cut it in half. Yeah. It's still a big number, yeah. right? And, and oh, by the way, over 70% of those digital transformation initiatives, they, they don't deliver the ROI. And, and, and so envision, so to your point, there's a lot of waste. Just like in supply chains, there's a lot of mm-hmm. waste. You know, we, we throw away so much food, right? And yet people are dying of hunger, right? And that happens because of the supply-demand imbalances. Similarly, in the flow of work and in, in the flow of software development and technology development, right? 
There's a lot of waste. And, and I think we, as we think about a world that's more sustainable, a world that you know, we can future-proof for our next several generations, we, we have to remove the waste from the value chain around that is involved in digital transformation, that's involved in the work in the enterprise. And, and if that can happen, I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mean great things in terms of productivity improvements, efficiency improvements and things. But frankly, it'll also have a big impact on sustainability, right? And right now we see, and we saw this during the pandemic, right? People are working so hard. There's mental exhaustion, right? People are just fatigued. We, we, we're spending more energy on things, you know, physical energy and mental energy, right? And, and so to me, that's also part of the opportunity is, is that that trillion dollar opportunity is, is to future-proof this for our future generations by, by having a more sustainable approach to moving forward and doing the work and delivering on these, these technology innovations. That's awesome. And I think so inspiring result. And I am absolutely honored to be on this journey with you. And, and I think we're going to have to continue sharing our learnings as we, as we surf these three waves. So I think this, this has been hugely valuable. Thank you so much for joining. And uh, yeah, we'll have to have you back and give a progress report on how we're doing on helping these organizations and helping all this value get unlocked. Because I think the vision is, the vision is clear and we, we shouldn't mistake it for a short distance. But uh, I think as you outlined it, I think it is absolutely something we can deliver on. So Thank you so much, Mick. Totally enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Razat for joining us for the special episode of Mick Plus One. For our listeners who are wondering, yes, the Mick Plus One podcast will definitely continue with a new episode every few weeks, and you can hit subscribe to stay in the loop. For more, follow me in my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags Mick Plus One or Project to Product. You can also follow Razat on LinkedIn. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book, and remember that all other proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.